Hello, and welcome back to Suite 212 after a lengthy absence. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and I apologise for the long summer break, especially if you're a paying subscriber to the show, but I hope you'll feel that this programme has been worth the wait. Normally on Suite 212, I look at the arts in their social, cultural, historical and political contexts, but today I'm going to look at one of the most important and influential politicians of recent years in an artistic context. Joining me today to talk about the role that the arts played in the development of his political consciousness and political project is Jeremy Corbyn. I doubt Jeremy will need much introduction to many of our listeners, but I'm going to do one anyway. Born in Wiltshire in 1949 to parents who'd met at a meeting in support of the Spanish Republic in the 1930s, Jeremy Corbyn spent time travelling in Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay and Chile, before becoming a trade union official and then a Labour Party councillor in Haringey in North London. A campaigner against apartheid, nuclear weapons and fascism, he became MP for Islington North in 1983, supporting the minor strike and LGBT rights, nearly going to prison for refusing to pay the poll tax, and campaigning on behalf of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six. He was a vocal critic of the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq as part of the Stop the War coalition, and strongly opposed austerity in the early 2010s. In 2015, he defeated odds of 200 to 1 to become Labour leader, and was re-elected in 2016. He led the party into the 2017 general election, where he secured their largest vote since 2001, the biggest swing to Labour since 1945, and a hung parliament. He resigned after the 2019 general election, resulting in a large Conservative majority. Since stepping down as Labour leader in April, he's been involved in plenty of community work around the COVID-19 pandemic, been on the picket line to support industrial action against planned redundancies at Tate Enterprises, taken part in online discussions, and appeared in plenty of podcasts, including this one. Jeremy, thanks for joining me today. One of the things that won me over to your leadership campaign in 2015 was the sense of approaching politics with some sort of artistic conscience and a sense of having some sort of artistic vision and indeed a 10-page policy for the arts. You said in 2015 that in every one of us there's a poet, a writer of songs, an artist or creative thinker. And I wanted to start off by asking how central this premise was to your political vision. Uh, To me, very important because uh, the way people exercise their imagination, the way they think about things, isn't necessarily in in a totally compartmentalised way. Poetry covers all kinds of emotions and ideas. It's artistic, it's descriptive, it's historical, it's emotional, it's personal. It's angry, it's happy, it's sad, it's, it's everything. And uh, many novelists and artists actually think very deeply about lots of other subjects. And what I was trying to say in my uh, leadership campaign was that we have to unlock the creative, particularly in uh, young people, and uh, let their imaginations fly. Because too often, young people are forced into very specific subject learning in school, quite young, often as young as 14 or so, and not given enough space to actually develop. And so I thought that uh, one way of helping this sense of creativity in people was to have, particularly young people, was to have a pupil arts premium with a ring funds spending for arts expenditure in schools so that every child would get to learn a musical instrument, 
would get to do creative art in the sense of theatre type art, but also painting or other kinds of creative art, and particularly music making. And I'm involved with a number of uh, local voluntary young persons theatre groups. And it's amazing, young people coming along who are not necessarily doing terribly well in conventional school education, but suddenly find themselves when they're given the space to write a play or collaborate with others on writing a play. And so it's unlocking that potential that I'm something that I'm very, very keen on. And um, our movement, the labour movement, uh, was always born out of a combination of the scientific, political, the sense of the analysis of the economic and social ills that we face, but also born out of the creative. And so some of the great writings are of people who themselves led very, very poor and very, very difficult lives, but nevertheless were able to write about it. And the miners' institutes of the 18th, 19th century on from 18th, 19th century, always had libraries with them and always encouraged people to write and uh, poetry that goes with it. So I think there's a great tradition there, which I'm very, very proud that we managed to develop an arts policy. And in the 2019 election had a very comprehensive arts policy that was launched at the Theatre Royal in Stratford. Yeah, I mean, speaking of 2019, I was at the final rally that you did on the night before the election, and mm. you close by quoting Victor Harra, um, mm. the Chilean singer and songwriter and poet. And, you know, you explained the story to the audience of how Harra supported Salvador Allende's popular unity government. Of course, he was part of this fertile artistic culture that included the poet Pablo Neruda. And all three of them, Allende, Neruda and Harrow, of course, died after the fascist coup of 11th of September 1973. And it seemed to me that of all the kind of distinct socialist and leftist cultures that have emerged in different countries around the world in tandem with like progressive social movements, it seemed to me that this Chilean culture sort of captured your imagination maybe more than any other. Um, so maybe we could talk a bit about what that Chilean culture meant to you, how it came to you, and how it kind of continued to inspire you? Well, I had a very interesting um, post-school education in that I, when I left school, I was um, a VSO volunteer in Jamaica, and my job was youth work, teaching, polio rehabilitation centre, worked in a theatre, and a whole lot of things. And it was a time of um, cultural development and discovery. And uh, I remember a wonderful teacher called Rex Nettlefold, who was the director of the Jamaica National Dance Theatre Company, who was um, explaining how he was trying to develop a dance system in Jamaica that was a combination of the African heritage brought to Jamaica through slavery and the way in which um, the cultural development had gone on since then. This was a time of the development of identifiably Jamaican music. It was the time that Bob Marley first appeared on the scene. It was the start of the, well, the end of the Rocksteady and the start of the next phase 
in musical development. So that to me was fascinating. I went to Trinidad for the carnival and heard the Mighty Sparrow sing and the Calypsos, which were highly political, very funny and devastatingly accurate in uh, attacking or supporting people's culture and their identity. So I've always been fascinated by the political voice that comes through music, comes through theatre and comes through song, often in the most um, unlikely places and unusual places. I then travelled on my own, uh, mainly hitchhiking around uh, South America, and I arrived in Chile. And um, Chile is different on the surface to other Latin American countries, and it's apparently more European. Underneath it isn't, but it appears that way when you first arrive there. There is a huge um, indigenous culture, the Mapuche people, who are being very badly treated at the present time. And I was fascinated by the music of the place and the music that was on the May Day March in 1969. And then I went to a huge uh, folk concert uh, which included compatriots and contemporaries of Victor Hara in a concert that probably lasted all night certainly I stayed all night on on this beach listening to the music and then Victor Hara became uh, very prominent in supporting popular unity and in a sense giving confidence to the poorest people in the poorest places in Chile of what could be achieved and then he died this terrible, horrible, brutal death in um, 1973 when they smashed his hands and then his guitar and then killed him. And he inspired people, as did Pablo Neruda. And it seemed to me that music of hope that helped to bring about the government of Salvador Allende and that music of hope right to the end. And I think he is a heroic figure in every way. He was taken to the horrible national stadium i've been in the national stadium and it's eerie beyond belief when you know what went on there and um he sung for the prisoners and he got up and started singing el pueblo unido Vencido, and the prisoners all joined in and at that point of course he was smashed up and killed and i think he should always be remembered and when the um, democratic government was installed some years later, I went back to Chile at that time for what was called the cambio de mano, the change of hand in Chile, because uh, there were still many concerns about the um, legacy of Pinochet. Indeed, Pinochet was still around at that time, had a degree of legal immunity. And I went to the Poblacion La Victoria with Joan Hara, who was Victor's widow, who had lived in my constituency during her years of exile before she went back. And um, because it was a pretty chaotic day, because there was so much going on, Joan didn't arrive in the Poblacion La Victoria with me until nearly midnight. Poblacion is a poor area in Santiago. And they made this marvellous presentation to her in memory of Victor. And... um, there's something very special about Victor Hara and the way in which um, Adrian Mitchell wrote that wonderful poem about these poor hands. 
Yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly emotional moment for me and um, the friends I was with at the rally to hear Victor Hara being quoted by, you know, a major party leader in the United Kingdom. And it was something that I never really imagined possible. And I think it kind of epitomised your quite different approach to politics to most of the politicians that I'd grown up with in the UK. Did you treat politics more as an art and did this sort of contrast to maybe more technocratic approaches to politics that maybe looked at it more as as a kind of science? And I mean, the reason I say that is because it's become quite a common trope for politicians to sort of look at whatever is popular culturally and try and attach themselves to that as a kind of electoral calculus. Mm. And this didn't seem to me to be your approach to culture. And it seemed to me that there was more of a kind of artistic sensibility in making a, a strong statement and aiming to, to, you know, change the society through it. Well, I think uh, art and culture are a very important part of our lives. And I like music, although I'm not particularly musical. I like all kinds of music and I have music on in the house all the time. And it varies between um, Radio 3, between Classic FM, between Radio 6, between Capital Gold, and lot, lots of different stations I have on at different times because I, I like to hear that variety of music. And I enjoy talking to people, young people in my community, about how they make music and the sort of music they're trying to make and how they get a sense of expression from it. And so I, I find the liberation of music and poetry and art, a very important thing. And my understanding of political history in the sense of the growth and strength of working class communities in this country and all around the world, they've often, the glue that's held them together has been their song, has been their poetry, has been their art. And you look at the art on old union banners, you look at the creativity that went with it, and you look at the artistic creativity of many of our most important political leaders and thinkers. I've got about a third of the way through this marvellous um, biography of Sylvia Pankhurst. Um, it's a very long biography. It's about a thousand pages of it. And she was an amazing artist who essentially went from on from the tradition of Walter Crane, who designed an awful lot of stuff for the Labour movement, and he came, I suppose, in the tradition of William Morris. And uh, she saw a lot of the question of women's liberation, of the rights of women to vote, as also an artistic endeavour. And um, the way she looked at poetry, looked at literature, and looked at art is very important. And also, Keir Hardy, a man who had little or no formal education, was actually an incredibly well-informed, creative, well-read individual, a man who basically taught himself everything he knew because he, he left school at the age of eight, so he didn't have much chance to do stuff at school. He did a bit of night school at various times later on, but was a, essentially a self-educated person. And in the run-up to and opposition to the First World War and the horrors that went with it, he mobilised, yes, political and trade union forces in Britain and around Europe, but he also mobilised a lot of artistic people as well, as did those supporting the Spanish Republic in the 1920s and 30s, W.H. Auden and all those poets of that time. 
were very involved in the uh, support of the Spanish Republic. And so that artistic streak that's there through all of us is something we shouldn't be ashamed of. And uh, I enjoy reading varieties of poetry. I'm particularly fascinated by the um, Coleridge, Shelley, Byron, etc. collection of people. And of course, with that comes Mary Wollstonecraft and her works. And um, I think we should think of how people in circumstances where political opportunities didn't exist, women didn't have the right to vote. Very few men had the right to vote. There wasn't a democratic society in any sense. Nevertheless, dream together of the kind of life that could be created. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear you talk of the um, the cultural engagement with the defense of the Spanish Republic, the Spanish Civil War. Indeed, we did a show about that last year. Uh, but it's also really fascinating to hear you talk about that engagement with the culture that developed around the socialist movement and the Labour Party in the UK. And of course, you know, that turned into Labour Party cultural policy as the party took power. So, you know, Labour founded the Arts Council in the 1940s with this founding aspiration to enable artists to pursue art for art's sake. And then, of course, Jenny Lee in the 1960s produced the first white paper on the arts and was integral to the setting up of the Open University. All of these things... The way in which the LCC and Manchester City Council and many others often funded music events in the parks and promoted libraries and galleries, even when it was a time of terrible austerity and underfunding of local government, they saw artistic development as something very, very important. And they saw access to the arts as a liberation. And so the way in which uh, local authorities in Manchester and Liverpool and so on helped to fund the Halley Orchestra, the Liverpool Philharmonic, concert halls, theatres all over the country. And I think it is in our tradition. And I suppose all comes together uh, every year at the Durham Miners Gala, where you get the amazing banners and the music that goes with it. Absolutely. And um, I guess where I wanted to, to go with this is you became an MP in 1983, obviously at a time when I think the Conservative government was was making something of an assault on this tradition of cultural democracy, this idea that culture is ordinary and that... Well, calling them Philistines would be generous. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, one of the first things that Thatcher government did, for example, was take away funding for adult education which I was, was something that in your policy platform, the National Education Service was designed to give people access to different kinds of education from, from cradle to grave. But, you know, you, you witnessed, obviously, all through the 80s, this sort of withdrawing of funds, these kind of cultural attacks on the BBC and this cultural war approach to it. And I just wondered, I wondered what effect that had on your politics and how much attempts to reverse that became part of your manifestos in 2017 and 2019? Well, education is a liberator and an eye-opener in many ways. And that tradition of night school, adult education, workers' education association are very, very important to us. My dad got his degree in evening classes at um, the what's called the Northampton Polytechnic, but it's in London. It was in Northampton Square. It's now City University. And he, he got that because he was a very hardworking, very committed, very determined person. And um, he often told me 
And without that, he would not have got the education that he got. He wouldn't have become the engineer he was. It gave him that opportunity. And um, adult education at its best allows people to study whatever they want, to broaden and open their minds. And I was very proud as a union organiser in the 70s and early 80s in London with the Great London Council and the London Education Authority to get um, release time from work for our members to pursue a further education courses at college on a day release basis on any subject they wanted to. It didn't have to be work related. That was because you had very progressive authority in the ILEA and uh, we had the union support for it because uh, it meant that uh, mainly women got a chance to go and study things they wouldn't otherwise have had that chance to do. We've carried on that to some extent with Union Learn and I was very committed to properly funding Union Learning and also to try to fund the uh, workers colleges like Ruskin to ensure that they can survive and give trade union members who've not had the chance to go to college some opportunity to go to college uh, through that and I think they've done a fantastic job and so it is about access to education and access to the whole person that's so important and I was therefore keen that with the pupil arts premium it would change the atmosphere and attitude in our schools and um, children who so happily write their thoughts down when they can when they've learned to write and sort of their in their early days in primary sort of years two three four by the time they get to um, year six they're becoming a little bit um, embarrassed about writing poetry and if you ask most uh, students in secondary schools if they ever write poetry I often do when I go to secondary schools the class as a whole always denies it nobody in the class is going to stick their hand up in a sort of year eight or nine and say, oh, yes, Mr. Corbyn, I write poetry. So the whole class, when I ask them, the whole class denies it. And then when we're mingling afterwards, ready to go, various students come up to me and say, yes, they do write poetry. And they're glad that I mentioned it. And so I don't think people should be embarrassed about it. Well, it's, it's really funny you say that. A really formative experience for me was at the age of 14 at secondary school in, um, in Hawley in Surrey, where I grew up. I was sort of becoming interested in literature, but I'd never really thought much of poetry. And uh, the teacher gave us Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley, and it absolutely blew my mind. I just thought this is incredible. I'd never really realised that poetry was a form in which words could pack in so much power. And I think one reason why I, um, why I became so excited about your campaign in 2017 uh, was you reading Shelley on stage and bringing uh, him up as part of a kind of radical English literary tradition. And that really appealed to me. Um, the hard part with Shelley is to decide what to quote because his poems are so long, <laughs> you know, they, they sort of, uh, well, Ode to the West Wind. Goodness, the West Wind would have blown out by the time <laughs> that you'd finished reading, reading the poem. Uh, but it is an, a, an amazing poem, as are Coleridge's poems that are, also incredibly long. Indeed, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is one of the shorter ones. But I suppose that comes from a time, because even the more conventional poets of the 18th and 19th century, Tennyson, John Macefield, and so on, were quite long, but not as long. Because poetry was also about telling a story, it was also a sense of history. And now, 
in an age of um, internet, social media, messaging, and everything done incredibly briefly, we speak in terms of images rather than facts. So you wouldn't write a poem describing the West Wind. You would use a few pithy words to say, the soft, wet west, west wind blew over my face, and that'd be it. Whereas um, Coleridge or Shelley would take at least a couple of paragraphs just to open the subject. Well, this is, this is a nice place to ask you about something that I'm really, really burning to talk to you about, actually, which is when you said that your favourite book was Ulysses by James Joyce, your, your favourite novel. Indeed, it's one of my favourite novels as well. I read it at the age of 21, I think, and I think I read the first 150 pages in a day around a day job at Gatwick Airport that I was doing. Um, but this caused quite a stir, especially amongst many of our, you know, esteemed journalists. And I think you annoyed them even more when you, you said that Ulysses was a book you could dip in and out of and it wasn't necessary to understand every word of it. I mean, I find this really interesting because to me, Ulysses is this epitome of this kind of popular modernist writing. And, you know, Ulysses is hugely popular, of course, there's the Bloomsday Festival in Ireland every year. Um, mm. It's a very well-known and really kind of well-loved work. But it feels to me that this contrasts quite a lot with the sort of answers that maybe politicians are supposed to give about their favourite literature, which is Shakespeare and um, ancient Greek literature, I think. Um, and, you know, this is something of, a, of maybe a private school canon, particularly the sort of Greek and Roman classics. So I wonder if we could just talk about, like, well, why Ulysses is your, your favourite book and perhaps why you think it inspired such a sort of vitriolic reaction from sections of the press. Well, I think the reaction was because they were a bit thrown by it, a bit surprised, were ready to condemn whatever other novel I'd chosen. I mean, just imagine I'd chosen, I don't know, Madame Bovary or something like that. They'd have sort of gone off at the deep end about that. And uh, I mean, the other novels I might have well have chosen would be um, the works of Chenyura Chibi of Nigeria. Because I think his novel, Things Fall Apart, is absolutely brilliant as a description of the ending of colonialism in Nigeria and the beginning of the form of independence that Nigeria um, had and has. So I could have chosen others, but I chose Ulysses because. I find Irish literature as a whole absolutely fascinating and so much brilliant literature written at a time of enormous stress, poverty and adversity and the brilliant way in which they describe life in Dublin throughout the 19th and early 20th century and uh, all the contradictions of class, of social class, of national feeling, of revolution, of anti-imperial, anti-colonial thinkings, I think are wonderful. And uh, you can read Ulysses as many times as you like it, you always get different things from it. I mean, I can't pretend, I don't suppose you would either, to understand all of it by any manner of means. And I first read it on a train going to Morocco from London. This was pre-Channel Tunnel days. So you got the train to Dover, then you've got the ferry, and then you've got a train to Paris, then you've got a train to Bordeaux, then you've got a train to Handai, then you've got a train to Madrid, then to Cordoba, and so on and so on. And then you've got the ferry from Algeciras across into Morocco, and then you've got loads more trains. And finally, you finish up in Marrakesh about some days later. And then afterwards, I took trains all the way north and went and finished up in um, Tunis and um, got a ferry from there to Italy. 
and I was reading Ulysses the whole way. And it was kind of almost surreal looking out at this uh, ever-changing landscape and trying to understand Ulysses. And then I came back to it some years later. And, and I just think uh, as a work, it's absolutely brilliant. The problem with me saying I liked it was that the Ulysses Society, Appreciation Society, then got in touch with me for wanting a very erudite conversation about every last bit of it. I couldn't keep up with them. <laughs> I, I really couldn't. I know I like it. I know I amused and inspired and made thoughtful by it all the time. And that really is surely what a good book should always do to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved it when I read it. But yeah, like you, I wouldn't like to be tested on it necessarily, uh, which some people in the media were offering to do, I remember. And I just wondered if you, you had any more thoughts about what that reaction says about Britain's media culture? That our media culture is generally very shallow, generally uninformed, and I don't suppose any of the journalists that were making comments about Ulysses had ever read one word of it. Maybe, uh, maybe they'll be in I touch, hope it. But... I hope it boosted the sales of Ulysses. Me too. Um, I mean, something that was of interest to me, obviously supporting your campaign, was, you know, the, the prominent anti-austerity aspect. And, you know, there were huge cuts to arts budgets in 2010 to 15, £82 million cut from the Arts Council budget. Arts funding cuts of up to 100% in certain places, Newcastle in 2013, for example and a lot of closures of arts organisations outside of London. I mean, it's notable that all of the Conservative cultural secretaries under the coalition and David Cameron governments trained as economists or accountants. Um, what do you think is the significance of that? Because the amounts of money involved in terms of national budget and the economy are not that great. They could easily afford to maintain, if not expand, Arts Council funding. And if they want an economic argument, the um, cultural industries bring in an awful lot of um, tourists, visitors and actually big engines of economic growth. Although I think, you know, one should look at art for all kinds of benefits, not not just that. I think they, the Thatcher period, they were just sort of frightened of the whole prospect of what they saw as loads of creative socialists being running subsidised theatres all over the country. My great friend, the late, great Tony Banks MP, became a member, it was a member of the GLC, and this is when Ken Livingstone was leader of the GLC, 1981 period. And Tony, he could have been chair of lots of committees, I would have thought. He was very prominent, very competent, very capable, and he wanted to be chair of the Arts Committee, because he wanted to put that money into popular theatre and popular art. So he would be funding local theatres. And this became, in turn, a pressure on the government. And whilst he loved the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre and so on, he saw it as equally important to um, promote theatre spending in all, all parts of, of London. Indeed, my discussions with the Arts Council were that, yeah, I understand the need to fund national institutions like Royal Shakespeare Company, National Theatre, and so on. But uh, if they don't give support and opportunity to local authority-run theatres, to local theatre groups, and give them a leg up and a way to, to start out in life, then where are the actors of tomorrow coming from? 
we already have a hugely disproportionate number of the major, major actors in our society that come from public school, as indeed the great musicians, many of the great musicians. Are. They are great actors, they are great musicians. I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying, if the public schools, which are actually a small minority of the entire education community, can produce so many wonderful people, think with proper funding what all the state schools could produce as well and how much stronger our artistic life and society would be. And so I am involved with a number of local theatre groups and obviously spend my time supporting them as a way of them giving place and opportunity for young people. I may just give you an example of how art for young people can be a liberating experience. There's one local theatre group, isn't a community theatre, said that they would do a play produced by the young people about child soldiers, which is a difficult subject at any stage. And I think three of the young people acting in the play had been child soldiers in West Africa. So for them, it was, well, a difficult and interesting experience. I thought it was a very difficult play to do, very edgy in lots of ways, and emotionally very draining on all of the young people acting in it. And uh, I, I went to see this play and I was watching the reaction of the audience around me. And they were in turn horrified it was happening, horrified we had the play on, shocked by the content of it, appalled by the messages they were hearing. And at the end, very, very impressed with the way in which the young people did it. It was an emotional journey like no other for those young people. But I think that's what good art and good theatre is about. Yeah, and I mean, all through this interview, you've repeatedly gone back to education and the uses of arts for the young and getting young people engaged with art. And it struck me that while there was often quite a lot of focus on the sort of socioeconomic aspects of the Labour Party under your leadership, there was always a big cultural component as well. You know, at the World Transform Festival, there were always kind of films and musical and cultural events, as well as, you know, discussions of the economy and of big P politics. And of course, one of the things that really kick-started the 2017 election campaign was the speech you gave at the Prenton Park Football Stadium, uh, introducing the Libertines, where you, you talked again about this idea that there's a poet or a musician or, you know, an actor in all of us. And this went down very well with the audience who indeed started, you know, chanting your name. Why do you think so much of the energy around that 2017 campaign, you know, emerged from these cultural contexts and how important were the aesthetic aspects of the campaign, things like Simon Baker's films? Well, very important to me because um, I wanted us to have really imaginative film. So Ken Loach, Simon Baker and others produced films for us and with us. And um, I think Ken Loach's style of production is absolutely fascinating. I remember going to Sheffield to do a film with him about life and communities in Sheffield. And um, Ken sort of said to me, no, we'll only need you for about half an hour. You're just doing a bit at the beginning. I should have pinched myself at the time because I was there the whole afternoon. Because what Ken did was sort of tried to get the audience talking. And the audience was sitting in a community centre while Ken and others were doing lighting and stuff, ready to get started. And this went on forever. And people were 
obviously a bit nervous, a bit shy, weren't quite sure why they were there. And so I tried to get them talking and that wasn't going terribly well until I started asking the audience questions. I said, now, this community centre, and I gave the name of it. I said, why is it called that? Most people said, don't know, and it's named after somebody. And so the next thing was they said, oh, yeah, he was in the tenants group. And then they started talking about the power of the tenants association and why that man had wanted a community centre and an art centre with it. And so that got the conversation going. And I think Ken Loach's style of filmmaking, where he involves people, is very, very impressive. Simon, sadly, no longer with us, was quite amazing. He came to talk to me in my office. And I, I said to him, I said, Simon, what do you actually want to do with these films and things you want to make? And he said, I want to be a vehicle that gives working class people a voice on their own terms into the political debate that's happening. So their voice will come through, not via moderators, not via economists, not via commentators. It will come through from them. And that's what he did. Absolutely fantastic. Obviously, another memorable development in the 2017 campaign was the Grime for Corbyn movement. And, you know, a part of that obviously was the kind of endearing, maybe incongruity between you and some of the grime artists in terms of kind of age and background. But, you know, there was there was something interesting about that, because, you know, rather than you coming out and saying, oh, yes, I love this music, I listen to it all the time. Your approach was more about talking about creating a set of circumstances in which people could make music and people connected on on that level, I think. But um, I mean, how did, how did you feel about this this grind for Corbyn development? Um, well, I was slightly embarrassed that it was that we had done it sort of for Corbyn. It ought to be for for our la- for Labour for our movement or whatever else. But that's what it was called. I was not involved in the setting up of it. That was done entirely by grime artists. But I was also very proud that we had put forward a set of policies that had broken out of the political commentary on the media and broken out of transactional politics into a societal politics of what we can achieve in the future. And so going to Prenton Park for We're All Live that day, to be quite honest, there were people who thought I shouldn't go, shouldn't do it. Uh, said stay away, keep away from that. Politicians at music festivals never works, doesn't go down very well. You might get a hard time. So I said, well, I'll take my chance on it. I'll go anyway. And so I went on to the stage, which was pretty crowded because of, it wasn't a very big stage. There was cables and wires all over the place. And I thought it was going to be falling over and so on, which is never a good look when you walk up to the microphone and fall over on your way there. So I went there and um, various people had indeed written a speech for me, which I uh, stuck in my pocket and didn't use at all. And I just made some notes myself five minutes before, realising I only had a few minutes. I was introducing another band. And what am I going to say? Because it was between Reverend the Makers and the Libertines. And so I decided to link the artistic culture and traditions of football with music because we were in the Tramia Rover Stadium. And I was just basically sharing my thoughts with the crowd. I couldn't really hear what the reaction was because on, on the stage, you, you know there's a wall of noise, but you don't really know what the wall of noise is. And so it was, wasn't some time I realized that what they were chanting was actually very supportive. 
wonderful moment. Yeah, and I mean, it won me and a number of other people, I think, over in a way that was sustained for the rest of your time as as Labour leader. And uh, indeed, before the 2019 election, um, I co-wrote uh, with my friend Kit Kalis from Influx Press. I co-wrote a letter called Culture for Labour, which we published at Tribune. And we talked about Labour's arts policies in 2019, which have been developed further from 2015 and 17 talked about the Cultural Capital Fund for Museums, Galleries and Libraries, about the Arts Pupil Premium and Money for Youth Services. We talked about the planned Town of Culture competition, but also the joined up thinking with education, with housing policy and all these issues that affect cultural creation. And we wrote that it is not just that we support Labour's aim to restore funding to museums, galleries and libraries to reverse a decade of austerity in which regional arts budgets were slashed or even cut entirely. We also support their vision of the arts as being integral to community mm. and to its conception of politics as something inherently collective, creative and transformative. This is not just empty rhetoric. This principle translates into policies laid out in Labour's manifesto, the most visionary offered to the British electorate in living memory. And we got a lot of signatures for this, more than 500. Judith Butler, uh, Brian Eno, Sabrina mm. Mahfouz, Alan Moore, uh, Maxine Peake, Sally Rooney and, and plenty of others. And one reason why we did this was because we thought that getting these high profile cultural endorsements would add some momentum to the to the campaign. Do you feel these sorts of cultural endorsements? I mean, are they are they useful? I don't know how much they you know affected the result this time out, for example. I think they are useful because it shows that we're reaching out beyond a traditional political class. I think they're helpful in the sense that um, people that love theatre, love poetry, love painted art or whatever, see their um, people they admire supporting us. So they give us a hearing as a result of it, but it also helps to widen and broaden and open up that debate, which is, is so important because if we wanna live in a society where the values of socialism that we have are at the core of that society. You're not going to get there just by saying, vote for us and we will spend X on health, and Y on education and Z on housing. We'll eventually get there because society as a whole wants to get there and understands those values that go with it. And that comes partly through artistic involvement and so on. And when you want to bind societies together, you do use culture to do that. You look at the way working class communities in the worst days of the depression in the 1930s came together through bands, through theater and so on. And during the second world war, the government of the day fully understood that and actually probably put more funding into the arts than the state has ever put in before because mm -hmm. they could see the value of music and theater carrying on during the war and the post-war labor government despite its huge financial problems that were absolutely massive, did put money and resources, particularly through local government, into all of that. And it was um, the Philistines of the Thatcher era that was so anti any kind of cultural development at all. Those are when yeah. the monetarists took over in our economic and political thinking. Yeah. And, you know, after the election, um, you were pictured wearing a T-shirt with a Pablo Neruda quote that said, you can cut all the flowers, but you can't stop the coming of spring. 
And you were wearing this again when I met you recently at the protest at the Tate Modern against Tate Enterprises letting, I think, 313 staff go. Um, You know, a lot of us obviously had been quite despondent after December and, you know, have spent this year kind of regrouping amidst very difficult circumstances where it's been very hard to organise. And, you know, the impact of the pandemic on the arts looks potentially catastrophic. You know, the Creative Industries Foundation in June said that the arts sector would lose £74 billion in revenue and potential loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs. And we've seen the South Bank Centre and Cineworld and various other places project or make huge, huge layoffs. And of course, this week, um, I've written a piece about Rishi Sunak suggesting that artists and particularly musicians might have to retrain for one of the many other jobs that apparently exist. You know, these these all seem quite difficult and depressing circumstances. But, you know, you and I and all those people on the picket line were were still fighting. So, you know, what would you say to the people who maybe signed the Culture for Labour letter or supported your Labour Party, you know, because of your um, approach to the arts? What would you say to those people who supported you? What would you suggest that they do in response to, you know, the current conditions? Keep at it. Rewrite those letters in the strongest possible form to Rishi Sunak and others and make the point of the value to the well-being of everybody, of a strong artistic opportunity for people, as well as the economic arguments that go with it. And uh, the reason I wore the Pablo Neruda t-shirt is that I'm a great admirer of Neruda and his poetry, but also what a message cut off some flowers but spring is going to come around again and I wanted to uh, little my very subtle way of saying to people don't give up hope don't give up action don't give up opportunity people have been through terrible hard times before and um, the people that are going through the hardest times now are those that are locked down suffering mental health difficulties feeling a sense of isolation and feeling a sense of fear of what the future can bring for them. If all that Rishi Sunak can offer is cuts to arts budgets, telling people to retrain for jobs that may not be there, cutting funding for our councils and our health service and privatizing services, then we are literally straight back to the politics and economics of the 1930s. And uh, that led to systemic unemployment of several million people right up to the beginning of the second Mm. world war the only way has to be investment and has to be doing things for the public good and recognizing that we can deal with both the mental health and emotional issues that people face as well as the environmental problems that we all face by a collective approach which is a collective approach of investment for the future And that is something that I feel very, very strongly about. I spend all of my time now campaigning on what I've always done, peace, justice and human rights. Yeah, and uh, you're certainly keeping busy with everything uh, in that field, as I've seen. But you told supporters in Dawson in 2015 that you also write poetry and and paint. Um, Will you spend any more time with, with that now? And, you know, will we ever see any of it? Yes, I do. The things I enjoy doing creatively are writing, which I do a bit of. I'm doing more of at the moment. I have done quite a lot of abstract painting over over the years, which I won't 
weary with the show you any because it's uh, it's my painting i don't particularly care what anybody else thinks of it it's there i do it because i enjoy it and you see in an abstract painting you see something of what was probably going through your mind at the time i also have um, over the years done a lot of wood turning as well and i find that absolutely fascinating because it's the combination of art and technology at the same time the technology of a wood lathe the position of the cutting arm chisels and so on on it but also the creativity you're trying to get from it and uh, that marriage of um, technology and art is something I find absolutely fascinating. So I'm doing all of those things and um, very active on all the issues that I believe very strongly in and that we have to bring people together to continue that demand for the decent, fairer society. It's only that one that can deal with the environmental crisis and the economic crisis at the same time. Well, you're not giving up and neither am I. Uh, and I hope nobody listening to this is either. Um, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for giving me the time as well. Listeners, thanks for joining us today here on Sweet 212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes, and I will be back with a show on Resonance 104.4 FM, resuming our series on the radio with a programme about the arts in Belarus during the Lukashenko regime. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.